Good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, before we get started, I just want to uh, take uh, some time for some family time. Um, first thing is we have some friends here with us this morning from Bloomington, and uh, they, I think they actually followed the kids out. But um, yeah, they're Nate and Katie. Maybe when they walk back in, we can make them feel really awkward. Um, but you've seen Katie walking around with her camera. Um, if you know any of the music that we've done or anything like that, Nate's the guy who's been behind the camera on any videos that we've had. Uh, if you listen to our podcast and have seen any of like our uh, podcast logos, Nate's designed those. Um, just good friends of ours that go way, way back. And so they're here to help us out and get some pictures because I don't know if you've looked at our website, but we've got pictures from like the ECS uh, cafeteria and things like that up on the website. Not a representation of uh, what God's done. Um, so just updating those things this morning. Um, two, I want to talk uh, for a minute about Children's Church. Um, hey, and look, there's Grant Brown. Everybody say hi, Grant. Hi. Grant is the director of Christian Mission here at the YMCA, and so um, it's good to have you with us this morning, brother. Yeah, um, Children's Church. One of our commitments as a church is to loving kids, right? I mean, we just sang a song uh, that I never in a million years imagined we'd be singing on a Sunday morning because one of our kids requested it. It's her favorite song, and she likes to stand up front, and I mean, you can hear her singing over everybody else, so why not, right? Um, okay, we love kids. We love them being in the service. Next week is a fifth Sunday. That means all the kids are going to be in the service, um, we don't work like a lot of churches do, okay? Uh, we don't have our kids back in children's church full time. We don't have paid workers. We have a rotation of workers. And part of our goal for that is to share the load together, uh, to avoid burnout, those sorts of things, and to have a group of people who are committed to loving our kids. Uh, but there's a second way that we can all have burnout back there in children's church, that our workers can have burnout. Uh, here's what's ha what happens if we're not careful. Okay, and that's if we're not consistent in our leadership of the kids. Okay? Uh, in my home and probably in your home, here's what happens. We tend to go in cycles. So everything's good, everything's great. The kids are happy, we're all happy, and we sort of start to relax our discipline. And as we relax our discipline, things sort of just get a little more crazy and a little bit more challenging and a little bit more difficult and suddenly we're all irritated with each other and we don't like being around each other and then we're like, what's going on? You kids, why are you so crazy, right? And the reality is we as parents have relaxed our discipline and we've not been consistent. And so then we realize as parents, oh wait, this isn't the kid's problem, this is our problem. We've not been consistent in the leadership of the kids. We've not been consistent in our discipline of the kids. And so then we have to batten down the hatches, right? Uh, we call it a reign of, of terror, but don't read too much into that, okay? Um, it's where we just say, hey, look, we gotta, we gotta snap back too. We have to go zero tolerance for a little bit. Reestablish discipline and order in our home and then try to maintain that consistency. And then what happens? Things are a little crazy for a minute, but then they get really good. And then we relax our discipline and then it starts all over again. And we're always working towards being consistent all the time. Okay, well, the same thing can happen in a children's ministry. And it can especially happen in a children's ministry where we have a rotation of leaders. Because what happens? 
Well, you go back there and you're like, well, uh, I could work hard to hold the standard or I could just get through this and then six weeks from now I'll have to deal with it again. Ugh. Right? And then what happens? Well, you pass on, you pass the buck down the line and then, you know, next week you, you, the next set of teachers inherit something a little bit more chaotic and difficult to manage. And they think the same thing, I'm just going to get through this. And it just kind of snowballs. Okay? Now, we could solve that problem by professionalizing it and paying somebody to be back there and just setting the standard and keeping it consistent. Or we could just acknowledge these are the cycles in our own homes. These are the cycles in our church. And so now we've hit a place, having talked to some children's workers, where it's just getting challenging back there. And so a couple of things, okay? Um, we want all of our teachers not just to be trying to get through children's church and certainly not to be dreading children's church, but to be looking forward to it. So what we're going to do, uh, if you are a children's church teacher, we're going to be talking to you about resetting the expectations for the kids over the next couple of months, okay? Resetting discipline, uh, raising the standard, providing more structure and consistency across the board. Okay? The kids will be happier. It'll be easier and happier for everybody. Um, we, all of us as parents, need to be prepared for what that means for us. Because I know that my own kids have been part of the problem. So it may mean all kinds of things. Over the next couple of months, one of the things that may happen is that some of our kids get sent back to us in the service because they're just being disruptive and disrespectful. Okay? When and if that happens, we're all just going to be chill about it. Okay? We're going to be okay. And it's not going to be, we're not going to be judging each other or anything like that. We're not going to be overwhelmed with shame or anything dumb like that. This is part of the process. Okay? This is part of the process of helping our kids and helping each other. Okay? So when that happens, if it happens, we all agree we're going to be chill about it, right? Okay? We're not going to be uptight. We're not going to be offended. Our feelings aren't going to be hurt. It'll probably be me that it happens to first. Okay? All right. Third, parents, I know it's hard Sunday mornings, you're scrambling just to get here, but part of the work is being consistent in your own discipline at home so that it's just normal and preparing your kids, just like when you go to a relative's house or to someplace special, you know, where kids have to be on their best behavior, you talk to them about it and make sure that the standard is clear, what your expectations are. Set apart a little bit of time. You have to do it Saturday night, but Sunday morning at some point. Just take a little bit of time and remind the kids what your expectations are for them. Remind them that their job is to go and to be respectful and to learn about God. We're here to worship God, not just to run crazy, eat donuts, you know, and go nuts back in children's church. This is not babysitting. This is discipleship that we want happening back here. But for that to happen, we all have to be committed to it being discipleship. And that means doing the work of preparing our kids beforehand, okay? All right. <clears throat> now, Romans. Woo! Yeah. Okay, at Church of the King, we go through the Bible most of the time, verse by verse. We are in the book of Romans. We're trying to finish up Romans chapter 5 today. So Romans, what's wrong with the world? Kids. <laughs> They're a problem. We should just get rid of them all. 
life would be easier and simpler. The reality of our kids is what? They're sinners, and they expose our own sin and our own brokenness, and we're responsible because we are sinners. What's wrong with the world? Sin. Why? Or we are. We are what's wrong with the world. Why? Sin. Okay. That's the root of all the problems. Paul's not done talking about it. We're not done talking about it either. We are sinners. We need help. Today is going to be one of those days we are going to unpack all kinds of big things today. Because Romans, we're just in the thick of it. Okay, so we're going to talk about federal headship or covenant headship. We're going to talk about original sin. We're going to talk about what it means for Jesus to be the second Adam. And we're going to talk, we're going to talk about what it means to live under the reign of God's grace. That's a lot. Okay, that's how we roll. Working through the Bible. All right. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. All right, so let's talk about Adam for a minute. Mankind, humanity has, said this over and over again over the last two months, you should be able to fill in the blank, mankind has daddy issues. Oh, come on, y'all let me down. Ah. Uh, we took our, that three-week break from Romans, and what I, what I realized preparing this week is we didn't take a break from Romans, we just spent three weeks riffing on Romans, because here we are, same things, right? But that's just because Romans is just the gospel, and that's what we were focused on, right? Just retelling the gospel story going into Advent. All right, so Adam, in Genesis 2, we read this, then the Lord God formed the man, now that word in Hebrew, the man, is just the word Adam, Adam. So almost all, any place you see in the Old Testament, the word man, that's just the word Adam. God named the race after the first man, Adam. Just like Israel. Israel is just another name for Jacob. God renamed Jacob Israel. So the people of Israel are the people of Jacob. The people of a man. Israel is the name of a man, a father. All of mankind is named after our first father, Adam. Okay, so, then the Lord God formed Adam of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And Adam, the man, became a living creature. The Lord God took Adam, the man, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, I'm going to keep doing this because I think it's important for us to see this. Okay, we're all named after our fathers one way or another. My family is Mensel because they're named after me, who's named after my father, right? And so you see this fun thing where the, the feminists are like, well, I'm not going to take the name of my husband. I'm just going to keep the name of my father. But you can't deny the reality. It's the father's, right? And this is important to today's passage, and that's why I'm pointing it out, Okay? And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
Okay, so Adam has one rule, one job. The world was his, paradise, everything in it was his, a garden planted by God himself. Just don't eat of the one tree. Don't disobey God. Don't try to supplant him. Don't try to become him. One test, a small one, that established the order of the world. God, Adam, creation. Okay, and then this is what comes next. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man, Adam... And his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. How's that sound? It's pretty great, right? Pretty great. We've got a garden paradise planted by God himself. We've got a man. We've got a woman. Soulmates designed for each other, literally. And they're naked. Yay. It's beautiful. We're a family-friendly church, I promise. All right, in Genesis 1, we read this about the creation of Adam and Eve. God said, let us make man, Adam, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you plants and all the things. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So here we have Adam and Eve, both created in the image of God together, equal in dignity, equal in worth, equal in glory, given dominion over the whole world. God blessed them. God looked at the world. He pronounced, or looked at the world and pronounced it was all very good. He pronounced his blessing over all of it. God, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden creation, order from chaos, paradise on earth. And then what happened? Chaos. Satan comes in the form of a certain serpent, in the form of an earthly creation from the bottom up. Right? Remember, this is important to hold in your head. God, Adam and Eve, the lower creation. Satan, in, in the form of the lower creation, comes to Eve. He's crafty. The dragon comes to take the girl. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent says to the woman, you, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband 
who was with her, and he ate. All right, question. Where was Adam? He was right there. He was right there. The Bible says Eve was deceived, that Eve was tricked. The Bible doesn't say that about Adam. The Bible says that Adam rebelled. Satan is crafty. In order to corrupt God's work, he had to take down Adam and he had to destroy and subvert the entire created order. So he came as a lower creation, as a serpent, to Eve, who came to Adam, who threw off together the rule of God. And it all became flipped upside down. Adam rejected God. Adam listened to his wife. Together they submitted themselves to the serpent, to the lower creation. Chaos. God's order destroyed. Adam was with Eve when it happened. And however you want to frame it, and there's a lot of ambiguity in this passage, not a lot of uh, uh, things there that are explicit. One thing we know is that Adam should have said no. Adam should have stopped. Adam should not have listened to his wife. What we don't see here is Adam leading. What we don't see is Adam standing up or putting his foot down or protecting his wife. Instead, what we see is Adam's just there. He's passive. We have no record of him intervening. We have no record of him saying no. And this is Adam's one job. This was his test, and he failed. Adam ate. Adam rebelled against, uh, uh, against God. Adam and Eve together took their crowns as king and queen of creation and handed them to the serpent. God's created orders flipped upside down. The world has never been the same. This is what's wrong with the world. Order turned to chaos. That chaos has radiated out from the Garden of Eden and impacted thousands of generations to this day. That's what's wrong with the world. Now let's keep going. In Genesis. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man, Adam, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Now here comes God calling. Question, who sinned first? Who sinned first? That was Eve, right? Eve ate the tree first and gave it to her husband. Eve sinned first. Was Eve responsible for Eve's own actions? Of course she was. Of course she was. Who did God come for? God came for Adam. Because Adam was responsible. Eve was responsible for herself, but Adam was responsible for himself and for Eve. Adam was the head of the human race, the covenant head or federal head, we call it. We'll talk about that in a minute, okay? It's important that we see and understand that. But who does God hold responsible? It's Adam. The Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, watch what Adam does here. We all know what he's going to do, right? 
What's he going to do? That's right. The man said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It was the woman you, it was the woman you gave me. Adam's looking for somebody to blame for his own problems, for his own passivity, for his own rebellion. He's blame shifting. He wants out of the consequences. And Adam's not above blaming God himself. It was the woman that you gave to me. He wants out. He wants to be able to sit back and say, this is your problem. Everything was great before you brought this woman into the world. Man, that bachelor life, like the honeymoon was great. Don't get me wrong, the honeymoon was great. But, you know, then there's problems and there's problems and I don't know. You take care of it. And that's Adam's attitude. He doesn't want to own responsibility, that the, the responsibility that God placed on him in the garden from the beginning. This is Adam's wickedness taking root already. This is the legacy that he left to us. Does this sound familiar? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. She's just following her husband's lead, right? Blame shifting. So then God curses a serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. God curses the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So pain in childbirth, strife and chaos in the home between husband and wife. And then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God curses the serpent, he curses the woman, he curses the man, Adam. Curses his work, curses the ground that we walk on. Thorns, thistles, futility, pain. And ultimately, death, spiritual and physical death. Now, today's passage in Romans is one of the reasons why it's absolutely essential that we understand this account in Genesis to be literal, historical. It's not merely typology. It's not merely deep symbolism. Okay, there's a world of people out there who see the truth of the story, who see the symbolism of the story, but they refuse to believe that the reason the symbolism of the tree and the dragon are so deep and so resonant is because it's, it's real, it happened, and it repeats. But it's true, it's real, it's happened, and it's why the patterns repeat. It's why the types and signs and symbols matter. And it's important that we grasp this because if we don't grasp and understand this, then we don't understand and can't understand what it means to be in Christ, which is how we're forgiven and how we're transformed and how we're saved. Okay, now there's a doctrine on display here that explains how God made the world. 
It's called federal or covenant headship, okay? Federal and covenant more or less mean the same thing, okay? As good Americans, we tend to think of ourselves almost exclusively in individualistic terms. God sees us both as individuals and as members of a covenant community, which is to say that he sees us as families. Over every covenant is a head, and the head is responsible to care for the family and ensure that in the family the covenant's kept. Who's the head of each family? It's dad. Dads, I've got news for you. The question is not, will you be the head of your home? The question is, what kind of head will you be? Will you be a good head or a bad one? Will you be present? Will you be life-giving? Will you be loving and tender like Jesus? Will you take on responsibility for your family? Or will you be like Adam? Will you be passive? Will you be lazy? Or will you be abusive and domineering? The question isn't whether or not you're the head of your home. It's what kind of head are you? Throughout Scripture, we see that God works through fathers, and God holds fathers responsible. By design, this is a world of father rule, and that's why it's imperative that men take responsibility that we don't make excuses, that we own the state of our own souls and the state of our families and the state of this church and the state of this community. God made men as covenant heads to love, provide, and protect, to own responsibility, which sounds like a privilege, and it is, but it's a burden, a load, a weight that men are made to carry. I know that some of you think that when the Bible talks about men being the head, some of you think, well, does that mean women aren't responsible for their own actions? And of course, that's stupid, right? And some of you are like, oh, no fair, men get to, get to be the boss. It's like, that's nah, not the way it works. It's not the way it works. That's not the way that leadership works. That's not the way a good marriage works. At your job, if you have a good boss, or a bad boss, rather, and he goes off and he makes his own decisions and he turns around and blames everybody else for when things go bad. It's just a bad boss. We all know that, right? If you have a good boss, he listens to everybody. He takes the wisdom of those around him into account. And then he takes the responsibility on himself for when things go bad. It's a good boss. It's a good head. That's a good ruler, a good mayor, a good governor, a good president, a good CEO, a good boss, a good coach, just takes responsibility. It's just leadership. We all know and understand that, right? When you're in leadership and you make a decision, you'd better have the counsel of everybody around you, especially those God has placed to be your helper. If you're a coach, you make decisions that affect the whole team, and you bear that responsibility. If you're a mayor or a governor or president, your decisions affect your city or your state or your country, and you're accountable to God and to those under your authority as well. So men, brothers, take responsibility for your homes, for your church, this church, and for this community, and don't look for people to blame for your problems. You have to be willing to take responsibility and lead. Women, you have to be able to and ready to help and to follow and to support. Last week, Bart uh, Blaylock and I went down to the youth home down the street, or maybe it was the week before. Yeah. Um, asking if there's any ways that our church can help. 
and maybe connect things to the why. And so we're meeting with them again this week. But you know what they said the number one thing they need is? Dads. They just need dads. Everybody running that place down there was women. And the one thing they said to us is, we just need dads. We need dads who can come and show kids how to tie a tie, how to shave. This one lady was like, I had to like, go on YouTube and like, watch videos so I could teach this boy how to shave. We just need dads who are here and who are present, men who care. That's what these, that's what these boys need. They need dads. It's just the world that we live in. That's what Church of the King needs. That's what your home needs. We need dads. Dads who lead, dads who love, dads who care, dads who sacrifice, dads who embrace responsibility. Okay, so Adam is the federal head of the human race, named after him. When Adam sinned and fell, he broke God's covenant himself. And that means that everyone who is in Adam gets Adam's curse. That's another doctrine that we like to call original sin. When Adam sinned, that sin was counted or credited to each of us. Adam was responsible. Adam failed. Adam's sin is now our sin. We're born in sin by virtue of being children of Adam. We're sinners from the moment of our conception. We bear the guilt of Adam's sin. We inherit the fruit of it. We own it. We embrace it for ourselves. We participate in it. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. We are Adam's children. All of us. What is wrong with the world? We are. Jake, that doesn't feel fair. That doesn't seem right. It doesn't make sense. Okay? Explain the world to me in a way that makes better sense. You can't do it. You can't do it. Nothing makes more sense than this. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal is my paraphrase. We don't believe in the doctrine of original sin because it makes sense to us. We believe in it because it makes sense of us. Something is wrong with me. I have done things that I am ashamed of. Things I'm not proud of. Things I know are wrong. Things I feel guilty about. Sometimes I don't even understand why I do them. I do things that I know hurt me. What's wrong with me? Sin. There's no other explanation. That's true of all of us, right? Sometimes I hurt other people. Other people have hurt me. This is wrong. This is not how things should be. What's wrong? Sin. My family has problems. There's divorce and sin and all kinds of awfulness. It's not right. It's not how it's supposed to be. We all feel that. What's wrong? Sin. My kids have problems. They're sinners. I didn't even have to teach them to be sinners. They're selfish. I didn't have to teach them to throw fits and whine and complain. They're just that way. What's wrong? Sin. Society has problems. 
The world we live in has problems. Our country has problems. We kill our babies under the protection of the law. We abuse and mutilate our children. God gives us his law to restrain and expose sin and draw us to him, and we want to cast off all restraint. We want to act like God's law is somehow limiting us and holding us back and oppressing us and repressing us. And the reality, as we'll talk about in future chapters of Romans, is that God's law doesn't bind us. It's sin that's the slaver. Something's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? Sin. Who is the problem? We are. We are the problem. But Jacob, it doesn't feel good. I don't like it. You know what I don't like? Gravity. I'd like to be able to just float right on up there and dunk. That'd be great. If I go up there and try, well, maybe from the platform, (laughs) thinking I might try it, am I going to get up there like I once did? That stinks. When you talk about gravity, I feel very discouraged. And I want to feel encouraged. Could you stop talking about gravity? I want to, I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. I think about it every night and day. (laughs) Just spread my wings and fly away. (laughs) I believe I can soar. (laughs) Don't talk to me about gravity. We don't believe in gravity because we like it. We don't believe in gravity because we understand it. We believe in gravity because it's just the way it is. Same with the doctrine of original sin. Nobody asked if you liked it. Nobody asked if it made sense. But it makes sense of the world. It makes sense of you. You can pretend all you want that sin's not real, that it doesn't run deep down, that it doesn't impact you, that it doesn't impact your family. You might as well be pretending that gravity's not real. You can get up to a height. You can get up on the track up here and you can jump off and for half a second you may feel like you're flying, but guess what's going to happen? Reality's going to hit. It's the same with sin. With sin, there's no escape and there's no one to blame. We could blame Adam. Adam screwed it up. But all that means is that we would have done the same thing in his shoes. All we ever prove is we are just his children. From the time we were born, all we've done is prove that we are just Adam's children. We've not done anything different. We wouldn't do anything better on our own. None of us. But someone did. And his name is Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That's what we've been talking about in Romans. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
by the one man's disobedience. Uh, ah, there it is. Lost my place. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Here's the big picture. There are only two families. There are only two heads. There are only two teams. There are two nations. There are two people. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. That's it. And if you die in Adam, you die eternally. If you die in Christ, you live eternally. You were born in Adam. You need to be born again in Christ. I don't like that. I don't like that I inherited Adam's sin. Okay. What are you going to do about it? I don't like gravity. What are you going to do about it? You going to rise up and just start flying? You going to rescue yourself from the curse of sin and death? It's not going to happen. Death, the final proof of your sinful condition, is coming for you, and you will not escape it. It is the way things are. It's coming for each of us. We can only turn to Jesus. In Adam, there is sin. In Jesus, there is righteousness. In Adam, there's condemnation. In Jesus, there's justification. In Adam, there's death. In Jesus, there's life. In Adam, there's justice. In Jesus, there's grace. That's it. Paul says Adam was a type of Jesus. What does that mean? It means that Adam sinned. Adam ate the fruit of the tree. He brought a curse on the world of thorns and thistles and sin and death. And Jesus went to that tree and he climbed up on it himself. And he bore that curse for us. He wore the thorns and thistles on his own head. He ate the fruit of our sin. He tasted death for us. That's it. Through one act of righteousness, there is justification in life for all men. Through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You were born in Adam, inescapable. Here you are, it's the way it is. You must be born again in Christ Jesus through an act of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a second Adam. He is a fresh start. New nature, new life, forgiveness, and righteousness. Credited to you in Christ the same way sin is credited to you in Adam. This is why it's important that we believe in Adam. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. Jesus was foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. We see pictures of him in Noah, in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, the prophets all over, but none of those men could do the work that Jesus did. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is the Messiah and the Savior. Now the law came, just finishing the chapter. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's what he's saying. The law teaches you about sin. It helps you understand it. And because it meets with evil in you, in your heart, 
in your nature, by defining evil for you, it gives your sinful nature something evil to aim at. That ever happened to you? I don't, I didn't know that that was a thing until I knew it was forbidden and then I wanted to do it. That ever happened? Again, God's word just explains us and explains the world to us, right? Do we live in a world intent on inventing all kinds of evil? Exploring the forbidden, perverting every good thing, coming up with new ways to do what God's forbidden? Absolutely. Paul talked about that in Romans 1. Inventing evil, giving hearty approval to those who do the same. The world wants to introduce you and your kids to evil, to the things that are forbidden. Okay, here's what I want to say as we close. Here's what I think God's word has to say to us this morning. Whatever you want to say about sin, whatever you want to say about what's wrong with the world, this is what you have to have in your head and heart. God's grace is more. However big and comprehensive and overwhelming sin and its reign of terror over the whole history of humanity is and has been, God's grace is more. And you and I, we are either under the reign of sin or we are under the reign of grace. It's either or. You're either under the reign of sin through Adam, leading to death, or you are under the reign of grace through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that leads to eternal life. So where would you rather be? Where would you rather be? In Adam or in Christ? For everyone who is in Christ, grace reigns. Sin no longer has dominion over you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus came to cancel the power and rule and reign of sin. When he hung on our tree for us, he crushed the head of the serpent and he reclaimed the crown that Adam gave to Satan. It's his now. He's the king. And here is his decree. Grace shall reign. You can hang it as a banner over the door of the church, over the door of your home. Grace shall reign. Mercy shall reign. There is forgiveness for everyone who comes and bows the knee to the true king. So, are you full of shame and despair? Grace shall reign. His mercy is more. Are you haunted by the sins of your past? His mercy is more. His grace is more. Are you chained by the sins of your present? His mercy is more. Are you crippled by the sins that have been committed against you? His mercy is more. This is what Jesus says. Grace reigns for those in Christ. He has come to break every chain that binds you, and there is grace to forgive, there is power to overcome, and there is hope in Jesus. Whatever your sins, whatever your shame, whatever your past, 
it can be washed away by the blood of Jesus. Whatever sinful desires overwhelm you and enslave you, you can be free. He came to set you free from your lust, from your despair, from your anger, from your selfishness, from your pride, from your vanity, whatever it is. Jesus came to conquer sin and death and the devil. He came so that your sin would no longer condemn you. He came so that your sin would no longer reign in your life and enslave you. And he came to put an end to sin once and for all in the world. And that day is coming. One day sin will no longer be. Because Jesus conquered sin and death. And he reigns. And he is declared that grace shall reign. Jesus reigns as king, and his reign is a reign of grace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as sinners with troubled consciences. Many of us in this room, we live overwhelmed by our sin, by our shame, by our despair. We live as though grace does not reign as though your mercy was somehow smaller than our sin. Free our hearts this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. Free us to leave here in full assurance of your grace and your mercy and freedom so that as we walk this week, we walk in the freedom of your grace and mercy. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.